This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I trust you're having a great day this uh, beautiful Friday afternoon. Uh, cooler type of temperatures, but hey, we can we can handle that. Just uh, throw on that old sweater. Well, one of the newest members on the government side of the House of Assembly is quietly making his mark. John Hogan toppled former PC leader Chess Crosby in his own district in the last provincial election and assumed the justice and public safety portfolio in the midst of a pandemic, no less. Since that time, He's brought forward a number of pieces of significant legislation, but who is John Hogan? Well, he happens to be my guest today on On Target. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, really great to be here today to talk about uh, politics and stuff going on in the province. So I'm really looking forward to the chat. Yeah, for sure. And you've got a really busy portfolio. And as I indicated right off the top there, you've been quietly making your way through and putting out some pretty significant legislation. So, and I want to get into the restorative justice piece, which we. Um, announced or, or you announced yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll talk about that in a little bit. But first, tell our audience a bit about yourself. Uh, what did you do before running for election? So what I did, uh, I graduated from law school, Dalhousie Law School, in 2003. Uh, I spent a couple years in Toronto working at a large, uh, I guess, Bay Street firm in Toronto. And then, like many Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, uh, realized I wanted to move home. Uh, so I did that. I uh, came home in about 2005. Uh, worked at a, a larger a, a multi-service Atlantic regional firm for about 10 or 11 years, uh, practicing all kinds of law, and then decided to go to a smaller firm. So I opened up uh, a firm called Wadden Pettigrew Hogan with uh, Chris Pettigrew and Andrew Wadden, two law school friends of mine, actually. So. Uh, it was right around the corner from where I grew up. So strangely enough, I always thought I'd be practicing in a big Toronto law firm, but ended up working around the corner from where my mom and dad lived. So I, you know, not only did I come home, I came directly home to where I grew up uh, as a young kid, uh, practiced law. So I did that for, you know, five, six years. Uh, so a lot of experience uh, practicing law, uh, all kinds of things. And certainly when you're at a smaller firm, it's a great opportunity to have lots of different clients, lots of different needs. Uh, so it was a good base to, uh, to grow as a lawyer, and I think it was a good base to uh, to learn to, uh, to use when I got into politics. Well, indeed, you said you didn't. You always imagined that you'd be working at a big Toronto firm, not around the corner from your, where your mom and dad live. But what attracted you to political life? Did you ever imagine yourself in that kind of a role? Uh, you know, I, the answer, the short answer, would probably be no. I have been involved in politics, uh, you know, behind the scenes for a number of years. Uh, at the party level with the Liberal Party of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, at the executive level, fundraising, uh, you know, campaigning, knocking on doors, uh, the sort of grassroots uh, work that all political parties need to do. Uh, and that was certainly very interesting and exciting. Um, and, you know, I guess people had always asked, are you ever going to run? And it was never a goal of mine, never a target of mine. I was quite happy being a, being a lawyer here in St. John's. Uh, but, you know, uh, I had a good relationship with Premier Fury during his leadership campaign, um, and uh, he certainly reached out to me and asked and suggested that uh, I put my name on the ballot in Windsor Lake. Um, and I'm not going to say I needed a lot of arm twisting because I was really excited to work with him and his team. Uh, I think he, you know, he has an unbelievable vision for this province, and he certainly uh, is putting in a lot of hard work. 
to make things better for everyone here. And uh, I made the decision to do it, and uh, I haven't looked back. It's been a great uh, year, year and a half so far. No regrets? Zero regrets. I'm not saying <laughs> I don't miss it, but zero regrets. I'm certainly glad I'm doing it. So does it, did any of that uh, history that you have, uh, you know, prepare you for what you're doing now? Or, you know, is every day sort of a learning day? Uh, you know, there's some, I mean, being in the Department of Justice around lawyers, I think there's something unique about that in terms of government departments. You know, I, I worked with lawyers in my previous life, obviously, as a lawyer, and I continue to do that in the, the department. Uh, I am the Attorney General, so I'm still, uh, in some ways, a practicing lawyer. We discuss files, we discuss things that are happening in court and strategy and the law, of course. Even when we're bringing forward legislation, you have that legal lens on it to, you know, analyze sections and subsections and debate periods and commas and things like that and what other people might think is quite boring but we we as lawyers sometimes recognize as important so that part of it the legal part of it uh, hasn't really changed a whole lot but you know being in government and the bureaucracy uh, that took a little bit of time to get used to and to understand yeah because it's a totally different type of process i'm sure frustrating at times no doubt uh, you know, I don't know if I would say frustrating. I, I'd say interesting and exciting, and, uh, you know, it, it is a nice change from my legal practice that I had. Um, so it's been nothing but positive, really, since coming to the department. And, uh, you know, the, the, the staff here and the lawyers here, I mean, they, they really are practicing top-notch legal services that I, that I wouldn't have really understood about until I got here myself. I mean, the large files uh, that they're handling, they're working on every day, uh, you know, the Crown Attorneys, uh, legal aid lawyers. I mean, you do get a bit, I have got a different perspective on all that sort of work that I didn't have exposure to as a, as a lawyer at a small firm in St. John's. Well, arguably, you're still relatively green, politically speaking, when uh, I guess one of the more significant things you may have had to na- navigate in, in political life was the cyber attack. <laughs> what, was, what was it like being thrown into that lion's den? Yeah, so I mean, it was one of the biggest, if not the biggest thing uh, I have and we as a government have had to deal with. Certainly the first concern was, um, which would have been through the Department of Health and Community Services, is, well, what is the status of the health system? Uh, Obviously, everything is online these days, and, you know, obviously everyone knows as well now, too, there was issues with that. Systems were locked, and they had to be, you know, backups used and rebuilt. So, you know, the, the top concern, was, of course, was patient safety, uh, and that needed to be addressed. And, uh, and the Department of Health and Community Services, the regional health authorities, and NILCHI all worked through that. Uh, so that was a major concern. Uh, and, of course, the cyber issue and, and the systems in place and looking at are we, uh, is everything up to speed? Was this a one-off? Why did it happen to the government of Newfoundland and Labrador? You see now, I mean, even when the Ukraine war started, uh, one of the first things they talked about was cyber terrorism as opposed to, you know, ground war that we would have been used to or talked about maybe not even five or ten years ago. So it's, in some ways now, uh, we're clearly going to be more in tune with the risks that uh, everyone faces in the world with regards to cyber attacks. So. There was a learning opportunity there as well, but it was obviously a stressful time. Um, but government and all the necessary departments were diligent and thorough, made sure the appropriate steps were taken to ensure patient safety and also to ensure uh, people's privacy was protected as well. Because as we did go out to the media, talked about the data that was accessed, um, talked about whether it had been any misuse of this data, and we knew people were concerned, and the government put appropriate protocols in place with regards to credit monitoring if people wanted to use that. So there was all kinds of moving parts, all kinds of departments involved, but uh, 
you know, we certainly came together and did a good job. Departments and agencies, RCMP, of course, doing their investigation there now. Where does that all, all that stand? Are you satisfied that it's been resolved or can we expect further updates down the road? There's, you know, the RCMP are having an ongoing investigation and uh, we'll deal with that when their investigation is full and complete. We, we obviously don't interfere with any investigations by uh, police, police authorities. Are you more confident now than you were before in our cybersecurity measures? You, you said that this was a, you know, a, a big learning curve. Are, are, are you confident that we're in a much better place, uh, you know, provincially? Certainly confident that it's being monitored by the necessary departments, but we all have a role to play. Uh, certainly one of the things I said when I spoke to the media, uh, you know, it, it sort of affected me personally as well. Like, you do have to realize how much time we all spend online these days, and everybody needs to take the appropriate steps to protect their own passwords, their own banking information, their own private information that we really feel pretty free to put on social media these days, and, and we trust all the websites that we go on. And it, it's a good time to sort of take a step back and, and rethink these things, and I did that. I used the credit monitoring to make sure my banking information was safe and secure. So, you know... It, it was a nice, a good opportunity to take those personal steps for everybody in the province. Unsettling as well, because then you start second-guessing yourself. Oh, my goodness, what about this? What about that? What about these things? Oh, that old account I used to have. Where is that now? What did I? Oh, my gosh. You know, uh, it, it sort of really rattled a lot of people. I know it rattled me. Yeah, and exactly, it rattled me too. And, but that's why I, it was, I sort of thought, you know, nothing has been done to my personal information, thank God. And uh, I do take more careful steps now when I am going online, and I would recommend everybody does that. My guest today on On Target is Minister of Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan. And John, I know your predecessor, Andrew Parsons, was very passionate about this uh, whole idea of restorative justice, and you made an announcement yesterday. I want to talk a bit about that when we come back after the break, right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. My guest today on On Target is Minister of Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan. And this week, uh, you and your uh, Education Minister, John Tom Osborne, announced um, funding for a new restorative justice program. What's that all about? Yeah, so this, uh, this was funding that was provided um, by government to a consortium called Relationships First, uh, restorative, restorative Justice Education Consortium NL. Um, so it was $600,000 for a three-year program for them, uh, to do some work on restorative justice. Now, this group has been working on restorative justice for about 10 years in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, but it was certainly something, restorative justice was something I, I was interested in when I became minister. Uh, heard some talks around the edges about it, but when this, they made this application to us for funding, and, and it was sort of good timing because it was on top of mind for me, um, and I appreciated that they had some expertise and wanted to take it a little bit further in Newfoundland and Labrador. So that's what the funding was for. They're going to go forward and hire two restorative justice coordinators. One will be in the justice uh, and the overall community uh, component, and one will be for education. And they'll work together uh, with Indigenous leadership for restorative justice principles to uh, to work and sort of establish uh, a restorative approach more firmly in this province. So what, what exactly is restorative justice? How does it work? What's the concept all about? Yeah, so restorative justice, I guess, to sort of, you know, uh, easy level to understand. You know, we have a justice system right now where I, I talked about it yesterday. It's kind of a win or lose situation. Uh, you know, if someone is charged with a crime, uh, they go to court, and the only options are guilty or not guilty. Uh, it is, you know, who wins and who loses. 
And when you think about it, that's not always the appropriate way to deal with situations. You know, that doesn't necessarily repair the harm that was done. Certainly doesn't work to rebuild any relationships that might have been damaged within the community or between the individuals, the, the victim or the offender. Uh, and not to say that this always this approach is always going to work, but it it is an approach that should be available to individuals in the justice system, for example, uh, to deal with the harm that was caused. And maybe the judge can take them aside and, and meet to discuss other options rather than guilty or not guilty. Uh, the the offender maybe needs to understand the harm that was done. To, to the victim, the victim may, uh, should be able to express how they uh, want to be, sort of feel like they've been heard and that the, the cause uh, done to them can be repaired. So all those things, it's just a bit of a, a different approach to how those situations can be dealt with. And obviously it could free up uh, resources within the justice system if we can avoid uh, jail time, if we can prevent people from reoffending, if we can have people understand the consequences of, the, of their actions. Those are the kind of things that restorative justice looks to do. Any idea what sort of scenarios uh, restorative justice um, might handle? You know, um, you know the type of crimes that this approach would work with. I mean, it could be, it could be any crimes. I mean, just for an example, it could be a theft. Um, you know, the victim. It might not be any benefit to the victim to throw the offender in jail. I mean, that person's property has still been damaged. Uh, their sense of security might be harmed. So is there another way to talk about it so that person then feels whole and that, and that their harm has been repaired as much as possible? Jail might not be the answer in that situation. And, and what I've learned and what I continue to learn is it doesn't just apply to the justice system. This is why we have the group involved, uh, the consortium relationships first to deal with it from an education perspective. I know Minister Osborne yesterday talked about uh, you know, something can happen in schools, uh, an incident can happen and a child could misbehave or act out or do something wrong. Uh, you know, sometimes the answer is, well, that child's suspended for a day or a week. I mean, is that the right answer? That's the questions we need to ask. What, what is accomplished by suspending that child? What about all the other individuals that are involved? How does that suspension affect them? Are they better off because the suspension has happened? Or is it better to get everyone in a group, to talk about it, talk about the harms, talk about how they can rebuild the damage that was done, uh, and try and move forward rather than, I said, just a win-loss situation uh, where it certainly might happen again because, because the, the damage has been done and it hasn't been repaired. And context is everything uh, sometimes. You know, a child might be acting out in a particular case because they, they had a really bad time at home or their parents are splitting up or they're moving out of the province and they don't, you know, any number of reasons. That's exactly it. The questions need to be asked. Not what happened and how do we punish it. Why did it happen? Why did this individual commit this action or crime or, or bad behavior? Uh, and if the victim maybe understands that, it might be better to, to repair that damage that was felt. If everybody understands why it happened, certainly you can look to repair that. Does, does a suspension or jail fix the fact that that child or that individual is suffering in a social context, doesn't have money and had to steal food, uh, you know, or, you know, had to do something to protect their family or their kids because they didn't have a job, uh, you know, those are the questions that need to be asked, and let's let's fix those questions rather than just run straight to uh, X number of days or months in jail because you did a certain thing. 
Uh, what about the victim side of things and the victim services? I mean, uh, some people feel violated uh, by a, a break into their home. Uh, their their sense of security, as you just pointed out, um, you know, is forever uh, affected by that. They might want to. They might be feeling pretty angry about that's, this that's, violation. That's why everybody needs to be involved, and it's different for every victim. I mean, you you might suffer the same uh, crime or harm that I do. You're not going to feel the same way I do about it. Um, some people want that sense of punishment to feel better about what happened and to say, look, you did something to me, now you need to be punished. And in that case, maybe jail or suspension is the right thing to do. But it might be different for you. It probably will be different for you than it would be for me. So that's why everybody needs to get involved. Uh, it's a holistic approach. Let's hear from everybody that was affected and let's hear how everybody thinks that we should move forward in the best way possible. Sometimes the answer is going to be jail. Um, sometimes the answer is, uh, you know, there needs to be punishment to an extreme for a situation. But it's not the same for everybody. And right now our justice system does sort of look at it as the same for everybody. You know, there are crimes prescribed under the criminal code, and then you link uh, punishment to that crime without necessarily, necessarily hearing from the victim and how they feel and what the victim might want to feel better about it, to feel, as you said, more secure safer and to get over such a potentially traumatic or, or uh, terrible situation. So how does restorative justice fit within the current criminal justice system? Are, are lawyers and judges and others within the system open to these concepts in, you know, if, if it's right for the, those scenarios? I, you know, judges are always open, uh, certainly from my experience, in my experience to listen to all sides. Uh, that's their job, really. There's always two sides to every story and judges uh, are paid to listen to both sides and make decisions based on what the sides present to them. Uh, there are some initiatives in this province with regards to restorative justice. Uh, what we're trying to do now is to move forward and to broaden it. Um, as I said yesterday, Nova Scotia has been doing this for 20 years and it's incredible how far they've come. Uh, what I learned from meetings in Nova Scotia this week was just it, it really is permeating all aspects of their society and all aspects of their government. Um, they have an individual who's solely responsible for restorative approaches that works within the executive council of the government of Nova Scotia. Uh, you know, we're not there yet, obviously, but it would be great to get there. Um, and another thing this approach does is, you know, we work in silos in government. As you said, I'm the Minister of Department of Justice. We have Minister of Health, Minister of Education. Sometimes individuals come to us and say, How do, you know, can you solve this problem or can you help me as the Minister of Justice? And there's overlap with other departments, and we need to ha learn how to work with that overlap to, as you say, get to the root of the problem. And, and it's not a solely justice issue. It's not solely an education issue. So what is the restorative approach amongst government departments that can try and deal with people's and society's problems? I guess uh, the public would be concerned, though, in in whether or not restorative justice addresses recidivism. Now I'm going to have trouble with this word. Recidivism. <laughs> You know what I'm trying to say? Repeat crime. Repeat crimes. And the public, you know, should obviously be concerned about that. But the goal is to not have repeat crimes. But we're not seeing that right now. It's not working right now. We do see the same individuals come back before the court system who are charged with crimes, who are breaching probation orders, uh, who are just sort of in the system and they can't get out of the cycle. Uh, so if we're seeing it now, you know, it tells you that the system we have is certainly not perfect. It does work, obviously, to some extent, but it doesn't work perfectly. So uh, I think the evidence would show you that a restorative approach does work. Uh, it can help people avoid reoffending. And like I said, like we talked about, maybe, you know, why are they reoffending? 
people don't want to commit crimes. People don't want to go to jail. People do things because sometimes they have no other choice. And if we can give them another choice, uh, it's certainly better for the individual. It's better for the potential victims, and it's better for society. We're not going to spend money on uh, crown prosecutors and court time, uh, people being at HMP. All that money uh, can be diverted to other things like education and health as opposed to uh, recidivism, as you say, or as you try to say. (laughs) (laughs) It's a hard one. I've always had difficulty with it. Um, Is restorative justice the way of the future, you think? Uh, You know, when I met with people in Nova Scotia this week, um, what someone said was, we haven't had this win-loss system for a a long part of our history. the criminal code hasn't been around forever uh, in Canada. But you look back historically, there were ways that restorative justice was used. Um, and I think we're creeping, certainly here and in other provinces as well, back to it. I know Manitoba is very interested in it. Um, New Brunswick and PEI are taking steps as well. There's steps to have Atlantic coordination on restorative justice in, in all those provinces. So uh, we are moving towards that, and we obviously take lessons from uh, our Indigenous communities on this who have led the way on restorative justice for uh, forever, uh, you know, and um, we can learn a lot from those, uh, the elders in Indigenous groups. There was a couple of elders there yesterday at the announcement that uh, will commit, uh, have committed to giving their wisdom to restorative justice and restorative approaches. So it's certainly a step I think would help uh, everyone in this province, everyone in government and society in general. My guest today on On Target is the Minister of Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan. We'll be back right after this. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. My guest today on On Target is Minister of Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan. And John, yesterday I spoke with RNU President Yvette Coffey, and she was very appreciative of the introduction of legislation brought forward designed to uh, protect health care workers. We saw that incident, of course, at Waterford Valley High. When you spoke to the matter in the House of Assembly, I couldn't help but notice that you appeared to be pretty emotional about it. It seemed like it was something you felt strongly about. Why was that piece of legislation so important? Yeah, it was important. Obviously, it was very timely, and we were lucky enough to, um, and we worked hard enough, I should say, to to get this legislation through the House not very long after these incidents, these protests, and potentially dangerous protests happened. Um, I think that shows, you know, how committed the government was to making sure the legislation was in place. And, you know, we were lucky enough that the, you know, the incidents I'm talking about were protests around people getting vaccines and protests around a hospital. Um, you know, we just went through a pandemic of two years when people were dealing with all kinds of stuff, health, uh, people had COVID, stress, jobs, uh, kids without vaccines, getting kids to school, wearing masks. I mean, we can go on and on. Um, and, what, you know, what governments around the world asked people to do was to just do their part, wear masks and get vaccines. Uh, and we didn't want protesters uh affecting people's ability to get vaccines and people who were giving vaccines and giving medical treatments at at these facilities to feel threatened in in any way. So we we thought the legislation was important. Uh, We showed that by getting it done. Uh, We announced it uh, almost as soon as we saw the protests and we got it in the House as soon as we could. So, you know, it was an important piece of legislation uh, that I said to hopefully uh, it doesn't have to be used in the future and people abide by it, uh, but it is there now to give those safe access zones around schools and uh, 
certain medical facilities in the province. Did, did it go too far, do you think, or did it strike the right balance? Because, I mean, we're talking about the, the right to say, hey, I don't think this is cool. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, and it did strike the right balance, in my opinion, for two reasons. You're right. People do have the right to say, hey, and they do have the right to protest. And they can continue to, to peacefully protest in these zones. Uh, what we're saying is you can't go too far in these zones and intimidate or harass or threaten people who are coming and going or who are working there. So they can continue to peacefully protest. As well, you know, strikers, uh, legal strikes by unions, those can continue to exist as well. There's charter rights involved here, and we didn't want to breach anyone's charter rights. Uh, so the balance was struck for those two reasons. People need to be safe, feel safe, not intimidated. There does need to be a right to uh, to be heard and to peacefully protest and to legally strike. And was, the legislation recognizes that. Was there a template for that? Um, I know the abortion clinics um, issue has been ongoing for some time, and there was legislation passed for that. Did you use that as the template, or or were other jurisdictions doing similar kinds of things? So other jurisdictions, I mean, you're right. We do have uh, legislation here uh, regarding restrictions around abortion clinics. and uh, But we did look at what other provinces were doing. We always do that when we draft new legislation. And other provinces did take steps to create what we, you know, we call these safe zones. Uh, we did, uh, I guess, go a little bit further in that this is not limited. Our legislation is not limited to COVID-19. Uh, some, some legislatures have sunset clauses where it won't exist when the pandemic is over, whenever that is going to be. Um, ours will continue because, you know, we, we don't know what situations are going to arise in the future. And uh, now if something does happen, we won't have to repass legislation or bring in new legislation. That's there permanently now to protect individuals uh, for these reasons. And for now, it's surrounding healthcare centers and uh, schools, that kind of thing. But could it be extended to other areas as well, given whatever circumstance might evolve? So right now, no, it only applies to schools and healthcare facilities. I believe there's authority under the regulations to expand the definitions of those things, but it wouldn't be to expand the definition to manufacturing plants or anything like that, or, you know, confederation building. It, it's just limited to schools and uh, medical facilities. Now, the big one, <laughs> replacement of HMP. Oh, my goodness, I've been at this for a long time. It's been something that's been discussed in this province for decades. Are we any closer to replacing that facility? Uh, yeah, and I've only been at it for a year. People have been at it a lot longer than I have. <laughs> so I think we're in a really good place right now with that. Uh, what I've said is we're uh, closer than we ever have been to that replacement of that facility. There, uh, there was a request for proposals put out. A site has been picked in St. John's for the construction of it. I know they're working on plans and dealing and addressing, consulting with stakeholders about what the facility should look like, not just in terms of the prisons and the lockup and things like that, but in terms of health facilities, mental health facilities at the new place, um, you know, recreation, educational programs, things like that. Uh, those are all very important when you build a facility like this. None of these things I'm sure were in mind 150 years ago when HMP was built. Guarantee you nobody thought about people's mental health 150 years ago. We, you know, we probably only really started thinking about that within the last decade. So, we're, you know, we are close. Um, like I said, the there's not much left to do other than, you know, get a contract in place, finalize the plans and start construction. And I look forward to that. And I know all the members of the justice community who are involved uh, at HMP uh, are looking forward to it as well. I know governments are, are, you know, a little bit reluctant about hard timelines or anything, but when can we expect to see those shovels in the ground? 
Uh, so, yeah, it's not that I'm reluctant, it's that the construction is in another department, and this is why I was talking about silos earlier. <laughs> we work in silos, and it is the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure that is building the facility. But I know they're working hard on it. It's certainly one of their projects that's on the list, uh, and it will get done. So what will this mean for both the inmates and for correctional officers who... Um you know, NAPE tells us, you know, have been suffering, their morale has been suffering uh, working in these kinds of um, uh, situations in, in HMP. So I would think with the new plans and the new, like the new areas I talked about, obviously that is going to make it better for an inmate. If you're just stuck in your cell all day with nothing to do, uh, it's not going to be good for your mental health. It's not going to be good for your rehabilitation. Uh, we spoke earlier about how punishment is an aspect of the criminal justice system when you commit a crime, and it is, and it should be in a lot of situations. But rehabilitation is important as well, um, and that avoids people going back into the cycle and coming back into prison. So we want an individual who is incarcerated to, uh, to get better, to get mental health treatment, to get addiction treatment, to get education if they need it, uh, and to come out of prison uh, in a better place than when they went in. And if they do that, I think it was a successful incarceration period. With regards to the workers and the correctional workers, I mean, it has been difficult. Uh, you even look at the last two years with COVID, they took extreme steps to try and keep COVID out of a, out of a building where they're all individuals are close. Uh, I think it was one of the last facilities in the country to actually have a COVID case. So, I mean, all their work sort of paid off. Um, but if it's a, you know, a cleaner place to work, a brighter place to work, uh, a place, a better place to work. Those, the staff down there are going to feel better about their job, and they're probably going to get along with everyone better, and the inmates better, and it's just a better situation and environment for everyone down there. What about uh, female corrections? Because I know that uh, the facility in Clarenville for a time was over capacity, and some inmates had to be shipped into HMP. This is a couple of years ago now. Um, and, I mean, you only have to look at the docket to realize that, uh, you know, things have changed dramatically. It used to be one time it was not that common to see uh, very many females on the docket. Now, uh, you know, it's, there are days when it's even, if not uh, uh, tipping a little bit towards the, uh, towards the majority. So uh, what are we doing with female corrections and how are we meeting some of the needs there so there is a planned expansion of the labrador correctional center um, in uh, happy valley goose bay uh, and that expansion is will be solely for female inmates so there is that capacity is being increased to as you said recognize the fact that potentially there are more females in the province who are being incarcerated and certainly for individuals who are from labrador uh, it allows them to be closer to their families, uh, which is a good thing in terms of rehabilitation. They don't have to travel back and forth uh, to the island uh, to serve their time that, uh, that they've been sentenced to. So we recognize that as well. Uh, there is an expansion going on there, and uh, it's part of the process. Uh, we're further along with that than we are with HMP, and I think construction on that is probably slated to start fairly soon. Anything on the island? No, I mean, we have our facilities on the island other than HMP, um, and the expansion at Lab in Labrador is... Uh, it's a component that we'll evaluate once that's up and running uh, and determine then if what the capacity needs are from there. We're not going to overbuild, <laughs> so one step at a time. My guest today on On Target is Minister of Justice and Public Safety John Hogan. We'll be back right after this. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. 
My guest today is uh, Minister of Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan. And John, I see that the PUB also falls under your portfolio. And in recent weeks, there have been an awful lot of questions raised about the PUB's role in regulating fuel prices. A review is now underway. What are you hoping to achieve there? Yeah, so the, you're right. The PUB, the board itself and the structure of the board uh, falls under the Department of Justice and Public Safety. Um, and, if the, you know, the PUB deals with all kinds of things, gas prices, electricity prices, auto insurance, expropriations. They fall under different departments as well, um, other than Justice and Public Safety. Uh, so what we're looking at with regards to the review, um, I guess from a justice perspective, is the structure of the PUB. Um, is it the right structure? The commissioners are there for 10 years. Is that the right amount of time? What is the right expertise to have on the board? Um, you know, what is the right way to do and analyze the things that go before the board? Should hearings be public? Should they be more public? Should there be witnesses? What sort of experts uh, should be involved? Who should be able to participate in terms of the public? Should it be consumer advocates? Should it be someone else? All kinds of questions like that uh, that we are looking to get answers to as we do this review. So it's a comprehensive review uh, about the PUB, and certainly we are looking at the associated legislation uh, as part of the review, like the Petroleum Products Pricing Act uh, and gas prices. Amendments were passed in the House recently about that uh, to have some more transparency. I think what Minister Studley said is she wants to demystify how gas prices are set uh, in the province um, with regards to wholesale markup and retail markup. Uh, and one thing for sure that you know we need to clarify is that PUB doesn't set gas prices. The PUB sets a maximum price that gas can be sold at. And retailers then choose whether they want to charge the maximum price or something lower. Are changes necessary, though, in, in the structure of the PUB? Um, you know, have, have, are there concerns, I suppose, about the structure, or, or will the review determine that? The review will determine that. I mean, we've heard, obviously, people talking about gas prices, and um, you know, there's even some misunderstanding or confusion about, you know, the PUB setting prices and how do they do it, where does the information come from, how do we challenge it if we disagree with it. So that going on as well with Muskrat Falls and electrical pricing, um, applications that exist there. Uh, recommendations came from the Muskrat Falls inquiry, actually from Justice LeBlanc, that the PUB structure should be reviewed and how electrical pricing is done. Um, you know, right now we have what's called a cost of service model. So, you know, what, an what a utility bills in terms of how much money they spend on a system, that gets then built into the cost of electricity, uh, which then the ratepayers pay. There's other ways to do that. Um, other ways is performance-based. So a utility won't get paid unless they meet certain performance standards. Uh, so, you know, is that a better way to do it? What are other provinces in the country are doing to charge uh, the ratepayers in their provinces for their electrical utilities? And are we doing what's best? So with these issues right now, I mean, gas prices and electrical prices with Muscat Falls is very timely. Uh, we didn't want to wait for a year or two down the road to, to see where we will end up with regards to these things. We want to do the review now put the changes in place that are necessary if we need them uh, so we can have the best PUB and utility regulation in the country. Minister Studley mentioned the demystifying of it, but uh, it's a semi-judicial board and it goes through those kinds of processes. And I know in the legal system, you, you know, judges don't speak to reporters and that sort of thing, you know. Um, and it seems to me that the chair is in the same sort of position. Now, we've had chairs in the past who have spoken publicly and are, were more than uh, happy to go before microphones and that sort of thing. Is that something that you, uh, you know, would like to see that make them more a little 
more publicly accountable, if you will? Yeah, so it's not necessarily about them you know, being accountable as if they're doing something wrong. No one's saying that the commissioners are doing anything inappropriate or wrong or that they're not following the legislation, not appropriately setting the maximum price. We just don't have all the information about how they get there. So, you know, you think of a court system, we have an open uh, court system in this country and in this province where any individual can go down to court on any given day and hear the evidence, look at court files, uh, sort of read them for themselves if they're interested. And we don't have that with the PUB. So when Minister Stilley talk, talks about demystifying, it's, it's that openness about seeing the information, seeing the analysis of retailers and wholesalers uh, and things like that that we want to be able to, to look at. And when we see that, it might lead us to say, yeah, everything, uh, this totally makes sense and there's nothing else that can be done. Or maybe we might have some suggestions when we do our review that we have that information to say, these things can be done better or differently, which may affect the price that people pay in the province. And we won't know that until we have the information. Uh, as I've said, you know, we don't know until we know. And that's, that's the point of those amendments. So the PUB's next big course of action, I guess, is next week when uh, the province introduces this uh, this eight cent reduction in in gas and fuel taxes. Um, So what's the PUB's role there? And is it possible that they could block that? That's a provincial tax. There is a component of gas prices that's a provincial tax, and that's what's being reduced um, when legislation hopefully passes uh, next week in the House. Um, so that'll be that won't necessarily affect the PUB in terms of their analysis on uh, what's called the NYMEX cost uh, for gas and the retail markup and the wholesaler markup. It's a portion of the provincial tax that's being adjusted. Uh, hopefully, there won't be any uh, opposition to that uh, when we get into the House of Assembly next week to uh, to get that seven cents off the pumps and give people some relief. Uh, I think everybody. I can't imagine anybody would want that. Indeed. Uh, four minutes left. Uh, what other initiatives are you working on? Uh, you know, like you said, we've had a very busy year and certainly things that we continue to focus on is um, we've increased funding for the RCMP. I know a lot of rural communities uh, have asked for that. Uh, they want police presence uh, in the detachments throughout the province. That's something we've recognized and have, uh, and have moved forward on. Uh, Newfoundland Search and Rescue, uh, you know, we had the Burton Winters Inquiry obviously beyond an unfortunate circumstance that led to the inquiry, but there's some good recommendations that have come out of that, and the extra funding has been provided to uh, Newfoundland and Labrador Search and Rescue Associations. We want to work with them to, uh, to bolster search and rescue in the province and certainly in remote areas of the province. We're working on, we've just started the uh, inquiry into the treatment experiences and outcomes of Inu in the child protection system. Uh, we look forward to them doing their work uh, and hearing the stories of families that had to deal with that unfortunate situation. Um, something that sort of flies under the radar is investment we've made in a province-wide radio system. Um, you might hear it in the news if you're following the news in Nova Scotia, the mass casualty incident there. The RCMP now are going through an inquiry, a public inquiry. One of the issues that came up there was that they didn't have sufficient radio system for first responders and officers to communicate with each other. Uh, and we don't have, uh, we need to upgrade our system here as well. So paramedics, uh, police officers, firefighters can talk to each other on the same province-wide radio system. So a lot of money has been invested in that as well, and we look forward to getting that up and running. So, you know, I think it's clear search and rescue and, and public safety uh, is really becoming a bigger uh, and more important part of society, and we're making a lot of effort to ensure that funding is there for the police, search and rescue, uh, firefighters, community volunteers in that situation to, to have all the necessary 
uh, equipment and training they need to ensure our Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are safe. So what do you expect out of this uh, RCMP funding? I know we spoke to the uh, Minister of Finance about it, but, uh, you know, in practical terms, what do you expect there? So it certainly gives them money. It's money for equipment that they need. Uh, it's money to ensure that they have the right staffing levels at all the detachments in the province. It's not much point of, uh, you know, having uh, communities without officers in them, and that's what the funding is for part of that. Uh, and we look forward to working with the RCMP. We have a new assistant commissioner here, Jennifer Ebert, um, I met with her a couple of weeks ago for the first time, and she has a great deal of experience. I really look forward to working with her um, and her perspective on uh, policing in uh, communities and progressive policing in our communities in Newfoundland. Final thoughts? Just a minute left. Uh, my final thoughts, I mean, we spoke about it at, at the start. Uh, I'm just over a year into this position as Minister of Justice and Public Safety, and uh, there's been a learning curve, but every day has been exciting. Um, and interesting, and uh, I got to say, you feel privileged to do this job and to talk about things that are important to everyone in this province. Newfoundlanders uh, and Labradorians have a great sense of pride and a great sense of our province, uh, a great sense of giving back. And um, you know, I do feel like being part of a government uh, encompasses all that, and uh, it's really humbling and special to be part of it. Minister of Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan, I appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Alrighty. And we'll have um, another show on Monday. We'll be talking about finance matters with the Minister of Finance, Siobhan Cody. So join us for that on Monday. In the meantime, have yourselves a great weekend. Thanks for listening.